came over and we, we kind of got it figured out, so that's good. Turn with me to page 727 in your church Bibles. We're in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. If you have not been with us up until now, we're doing portraits of Jesus in the book of John. And um, keep, uh, so page 727, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Keep that open on your lap. We're going to walk through this like little by little today as we've been doing uh, this whole uh, series so far. Today we see that Jesus is the great physician. That's the portrait we're painting today. Jesus as the great physician. And the question that is before us and before anyone that's reading this is, do you want to be healed or do we want to be healed? Right? And now I, I would say that there's a pattern developing, if you haven't noticed, with Jesus' words in all these passages uh, over the past weeks, right? And, and I don't want us to, to let that, allow that to become rote for us, right? You, we're drilling down deeper into his heart for us, but also in what we can be and what we're called to be uh, to others by his message, all right? So let's take this farther and farther as we go. Uh, this is almost becoming repetitive, if you think about it. And uh, when God repeats something, we listen. Let me say that twice. When God repeats something, we listen. Why? Because repetition means importance. There's something important going on here. Now, I want to start out by saying something that seems counterintuitive, and that is that freedom, freedom is frightening. Freedom is frightening. Sounds counterintuitive, but it comes, freedom comes with responsibility, and freedom comes with life change responsibility and life change, and that is frightening, right? Typically frightens people. Now, if you think about it, right, uh, there's only one thing that trumps sex as a marketing ploy, and that is safety, right? Safety, safe cars, safe schools, safe foods, safety from the coronavirus. You know, staying the same often seems inviting instead of, you know, the risk of opening ourselves to responsibility and life change in, in this world. So starting in verse 1 of John chapter 5, it says this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one, of, for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blame... Uh, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. The, the blind, the, bl- the blind, and the whatever. You know, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, in, if you've been with us long, uh, long enough at 6A, you know that in the past we marched through, we did a series, we marched through the book of Nehemiah, where we explored the meaning of all the different gates that are leading into Jerusalem. They all had a different name, you know, and, and what they meant. And Jesus is standing here at the sheep gate, where they brought in the sacrificial lambs into the temple, if you remember that, right? And at first glance, this is a story about a disabled man or a crippled man or a, you know, just a sick man, you know, sitting next to a pool in Jerusalem who Jesus is going to heal, right? But if we stopped there, we would miss so much. And I think that is because John is a master of imagery, He is a master of imagery. His gospel is painted in fine detail of all these little portraits, these little colorful portraits of Jesus, which seem to be similar, but they also have various things that are different about them. And this gate where he's standing was representative of the coming Messiah who would be the ultimate sacrifice for all of humankind, right? Lambs brought in through that gate, 
uh, foreshadowed this coming Lamb of God, this perfect Lamb of God who we know is Jesus. So the Lamb of God sitting or standing at the entrance of the Sheep Gate where sacrificial lambs are brought into, the, into Jerusalem, you know, this, this place of ultimately, ultimate sacrifice among a sea of sick people in need of healing. It's kind of apropos, right? And we remember Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So he's referring to himself. So he's the Lamb of God, we know, but he's also the gate by which we enter into the kingdom of God, right? And there's more. Bethesda meant the place or the house of mercy or a place of outpouring, right? So we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, next to the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, near this pool with five colonnades surrounding it, right? Which is called the house of mercy, the place where mercy is poured out on people. But we can even take it further. We remember, if, you, if you've been here for this whole series, John starts out his gospel uh, referring to Jesus as the, the living word, if you remember that. And then we have Jesus changing water to wine in the wedding at Cana. And then we, uh, we had him telling Nicodemus that he had to be born of water and spirit. And then Jesus is living water last week to the Samaritan woman. So John is sort of carrying this illustration through to its very end. He's tying all this together. And this man was looking for healing in a pool, right? A pool of water. And he will find his true healing and wholeness through Jesus, the living water and the, and the living word of God. The ultimate sacrificial lamb who heals once and for all. Now this pool was used to wash those sacrificial lambs that were brought into the sheep gate before Passover, and this story actually occurs at Passover. Everything about this story bleeds Jesus as Passover lamb, right? Bringing healing through his sacrifice. The waters at the pool of Bethesda become a symbol of the purifying and curing blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb of God, right? A symbol of something that has already come to pass for us, all the ritual cleansing, all the ritual sacrifice that foreshadowed the Lamb of God in Jesus and and how he heals once and for all. John's painting a very clear picture all throughout his, his gospel. Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the great high priest, Jesus, the living water, Jesus, the gate, Jesus, the great physician, right? Verse five, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time, right? 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Lame for 38 years. That's longer than some of you have lived, but it's only a third of the lifetime of Christine Massey, right? It's all right. It's all right. She can't hear me at her age from here anyway. (laughs) I'm sorry. We were talking about age last week. You just came to mind. Sorry. But think about that. (laughs) Note, how to... to 
ruin, like, get rid of people in your church. Make fun of them. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But how used to being sick would you be? How used to being sick and lame would this man have become in his life? 38 years. We get used to our infirmities, don't we? Whether they're psychological or physical or they're spiritual, whatever they are, we get used to them. People depressed for years learn to rely or they develop lifestyles that rely on their depression. We all know this, right? Battered wives become accustomed to abuse and they even start to blame themselves. To be well means new responsibilities, life change, which sometimes overwhelm us more than the pain that we've gotten used to living in. A battered wife reliant on an abusive, controlling husband can't see life without him. Scares her to death, maybe. Pain becomes our identity, often. And we're unwilling to change the situation. It's understandable, right, in some situations. We get it. But fear is never the answer. Perfect love drives out fear. Remember that, right? We get used to our prison walls. But God wants to heal us by his living word. You know, and the question is, are we willing to have him wash us? Jesus asked, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And many don't. Many don't since we don't know what to do with the freedom. Sounds kind of strange. In the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, we see a, an il- illustration of this. Brooks was a career criminal, and after 50 years in, car- in prison, he's going to be freed, right? And as, as an old, he's an old man. He's going to be out in the world as an old man. His first reaction, though, is to harm another prisoner, actually a friend of his, so that he won't have to be released. The fear of freedom. It's overwhelming to people. But he's talked down by the other prisoners and he is released. And and Red, if you remember, is played by Morgan Freeman, is later in the yard, out there in the yard with all the other prisoners, and explains to them why Brooks would do that to his friend because they're all confused. And he explains, Brooks is institutionalized. In prison, he's an important guy. He's an educated guy. He knows the ropes. But outside, he's just a used-up old con with arthritis in both hands. He can't even get a library card, right? On the outside, Brooks can't handle his freedom, and he takes his own life, and he just leaves a note saying, I've decided not to stay. I don't think anybody will put up a fuss for an old crook like me. Think about what you rely on, what you've gotten used to in your life to live with, how you've resigned yourself to live in your own personal prison, so to speak. And if Jesus were standing here right in front of you right now and he offered you freedom, would you take it? Would you take it? Because what Red, is, Red said is true out there admiring the physical walls of the prison. They're out there in the yard and he says, at first you hate these walls, then you grow to rely on them and they eventually take your life. They eventually take your life. And that's the question Jesus asked this man. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Now, thankfully, our story doesn't end in despair, but in freedom, this man actually wants to be healed. Verse 7, he says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So Jesus stands there under the colonnades, right? The ancient equivalent of a hospital. And he didn't visit palaces and all that kind of stuff, but he visited the sick in the house of mercy, right? He walked around with regular people. And this man didn't, you know, sort of exhibit faith in Jesus per se. He didn't even know who he was, right? But Jesus comes to him as Jesus came to the Samaritan woman, if you remember. And this man is reflective of us. He's reflective of humanity, right? He can do nothing about his condition. He is powerless, At some point, we're all aware, unaware of our need until Jesus shows up in our world, right? I never planned on following God. I didn't know I needed God. I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. I didn't set out on that goal. This man is left helpless to heal himself as we are also left helpless in our crippled spiritual state, waiting for someone to do something. So the man answers yes but he's powerless to do anything about it. Jesus doesn't take the easiest case. Think about that. He takes the most hopeless case there. Not the person who can kind of help himself and just needs a leg up, but the person who cannot help himself at all. There was a belief at that time that an angel would come down and stir those waters and the first people to get in would be healed. But he couldn't get in there. People were, were, uh, were getting in before him. This guy could hardly move, right? Just imagine all that time, all those years, trying to get in there and nothing. He can't, he can't do it. There's a spiritual lesson in that, right? That how we try to heal ourselves, but we need the mercy and the grace of Jesus how we try to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts with all the wrong things, as we saw with the Samaritan woman last week. But the other lesson is how we so easily give up on other people, right? Seeing the sick, we don't bend down and help them. You know, just like the people around this man, people had walked by this, this guy for years and never helped him. We can't see beyond that situation, that current situation in somebody's life. It's overwhelming to us. We look down at the situation and we don't look up to Christ. Jesus is willing and happy to take on the most hopeless case if that person is open to being well. In Matthew 8, 3, the leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. I'm willing. It's not that this man didn't want to be well. It's just he he didn't have anybody to help him get down into the pool. He thought that was his answer, right? And oftentimes the hurting are left, you know, helpless. You know, we we sense our own powerlessness to help them. We're confronted with a situation that seems hopeless, that only Jesus can, can cure, and we walk away instead of responding in faith. Think about the people in your life who seem hopeless to you, who you've given up on. Have you only looked at the circumstance and not really looked at Jesus for them? The great physician who steps in at hopeless moments 
This is also intimately tied to the question, do we pray for those who are hurting, right? Or even elicit prayer from, from, from others on behalf of them. You know, we have our prayer team, Rachel Runs, right? You know, and it's often a good uh, practice to ask people, can I put you on the prayer list? Can I email the prayer team for you? And we've seen God move in those moments where people's lives have been changed because of that. It also concerns our finances. Listen up. I'm going to say it and talk about money a little bit, just a little bit. It's often too great of a financial burden for individuals to help to any great extent in certain situations. We see people hurting around us, even in this church. Sometimes we see people in great need, but as an individual, it's very hard for you to help and make any great difference in that, right? Which is why we have developed a deacon board this year. People who can meet with someone, who can assess their situation, and who can direct them to social programs, which may be of help. Sadly, Christine Massey is a part of that, and she's going to leave after today, and we won't have a deacon board anymore. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) you got to know who can take a joke, right? Amen. However, the local church often needs to step in at times, don't we? We really do. Which is why we have the goal of each member, each regular attender, tithing at 10% of their income. That is the goal. That is the goal. Everything is spiritual, including our finances. Including our finances. If we as individuals gave joyfully and sacrificially consistently across the board, we'd not ever be limited to, the, uh, to, uh, to uh, relieving the burden of individuals. Among us, right? Or, or helping people out there in the community. So I challenge you to revisit your giving in light of this. We never want to be limited in our ability to show love in practical ways. So our giving has to increase in order for us to do kingdom work without limitation. We never want to be limited by that. It's a dumb reason to be limited, Right? But Jesus doesn't say, let me help you get down to the pool, does he? He doesn't. That lamb didn't need to be washed because Jesus, the great physician, was there, and he can wash him simply by his word. He says, get up and walk. It's by this living word that we are healed. Many circles of Christianity downplay the miracles these days. And I think that's perhaps because they don't see them because they'll not take the risk to invite Jesus into the process. They're not willing to live in that tension. I think we are growing into that greater and greater all the time as a church. Rachel took a risk last week hearing from the Spirit that there was someone with debilitating headaches in here. Two people came forward. Uh, one of them had very positive results. Actually, both did. We had a little reoccurrence apparently yesterday with one of them, but, but it is a risk. These are things that we do. We pray over people and we see change. People typically turn their back on infirmity because we feel like we have no control. And we don't, <laughs> Right? But the miracles were necessary to reveal Christ's ultimate power over creation. They're necessary still, I believe. It's the inbreaking kingdom of God, and nothing is more encouraging than seeing that. So let's continually seek Jesus in these hopeless moments, not 
going out of our way to sensationalize them, but also not disregarding that Jesus has power over cre- uh, creation and, and healing by the power of his word. You know, this, this occurred on the Sabbath. And everyone was there, gathered in Jerusalem to worship. And you'd think they'd, get, they'd be glad to see God at work at that moment. But Jewish leaders wouldn't recognize it. They're mad at the guy for picking up his mat and walking, you know, on the Sabbath. Healed after 38 years, and that's what they're mad about, right? Doesn't seem to make sense to me. The miracle served to not only show the mercy to an old man, but it revealed Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath that they had taken the law of the Sabbath beyond its intention, restricting every little effort, disregarding the good which needed to be done to those in need around them. And remember Luke 14, Jesus heals another man on the Sabbath, and then he turns to the Pharisees that are present, and he says, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls down into a well on the Sabbath day, would you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say because they knew it was true. But it's a paradigm shift for them. It's used to make them recognize the authority of Christ and the needs of the people around them. It it, it seems this old man man went straight to the temple and he started to worship, right? He started to give thanks there. And then in John 5, 14, Jesus meets him again and he gives him this warning. He says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So was his sickness, here's a question, was his sickness a result of sin? Possibly. We don't really know. But we can't take that too far, right? Sickness just happens sometimes as a result of a fallen, broken world. It just happens. However, it's also true that it's sometimes a a cause of sickness, that our sin also, also causes our sickness. Psalm 107, 17 says, Some became fools, Uh, through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities, because of how they were living. So choices definitely can bring pain and bondage to life. We know that. Paul even claims that the Corinthians were falling sick and dying due to their sin of abusing the Lord's table. But I don't think that that is a normative thing, right? Right? Jesus only mentions sin in reference to sickness as a cause to one other person in the New Testament in Mark chapter 2, the paralyzed man that was lowered down through the the ceiling. And he, he says, your sins are forgiven. But we can't even extrapolate that to say that his infirmity was due to sin. We can't say that with any, any confidence, right? Another, but it is another illustration, uh, you know, to those leaders present of Jesus' authority and that they needed to be caring about people around them. Nevertheless, Jesus warns this man by the pool. Why? Why does he warn him that way? Because isn't it true? Think about this. This is very true. Isn't it true that when you're freed from a prison, you quickly forget the feeling of bondage? Moms who have babies know this. They're like, oh my gosh, that was terrible. I'm never doing that again. Like five minutes after the birth. Then a year later, like, I could have another baby. You know, they forget about all the pain, right? We know this. When you're freed from a prison, not that being pregnant is a prison, um, you quickly forget the feeling of bondage. Just like the Israelites, we always want to go back to Egypt, right? 
We always want to go back into the slavery of Egypt. We don't know what to do with freedom. The former life was at least predictable. At least I knew what I was getting back then. Right? This week I watched a documentary on Rocio Molina, if I say her name correctly, I'm not sure. But she's the top improvisational uh, flamenco dancer in Spain. She's phenomenal, this girl. And she instructs her musicians not to become too scripted on stage. Not to have every note laid out, right? That she says that to take the improvisational tension away in front of an audience robs the, the performance of its possibilities. That's kind of scary. That anxiety, you know, that, that, that she feels on stage, that anxiety, that tension, you know, to have that is to, to perform not knowing what will happen, right, is, is beautiful to her, allowing for power to work through the music and the dance. That's a true artist. That's, that's a brave woman, right? Brave, brave musicians, too, behind her. It's, and that is a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? Right? Not to give up the tension of the unknown, allowing for the power of Jesus to work all the time. In the vineyard, we always say faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Right? Jesus, the great physician, do we want to be healed? Can we handle the freedom? Can we live in the tension? Or, when we're given it, do we return to even stronger prison walls later? Rokia's dance is never rote. It's never the same. She allows for this tension of the unknown taking responsibility for the freedom she has as an artist. So are you in a prison? Are you afraid of the freedom that this all brings? When we're freed from something, right, we, we'll, 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 uh, we fill it with a better thing or sin will turn, return at a greater force. We have to walk with Christ in all of this. We don't want to embrace our sin rather than our Savior, right? We want to embrace Him. But some of us are negligent in the nurture of our spiritual lives. We find time really for what we want, don't we? If you look at your schedule, you'll see what you really value, right? If we laid out our schedule for the week, would, would you see a desire for Jesus? Right? Would you, would you see it? Set free from prison, do you fill that time with spiritually formative practices? We're left empty if we're not filling ourselves with the Word of God. How do we know how God will direct and if we don't read the Scriptures and listen to Him in prayer? That's exactly what Rachel was talking about a few minutes ago. Most of us try to break free from, their, from our prisons by self-effort, right? Trying desperately to get into the healing waters of the pool. But we've been given everything we need in Christ, everything, and only He can really heal us. It's not enough to show up here uh, in this sanctuary and listen to a very eloquent, rousing, intelligent, well-thought-out sermon by a very skilled, handsome orator such as myself. Or to attend community group every week. God wants self-feeders. That's what he wants. He wants you to engage. 
Self-feeders who daily commune with him in word and in prayer. Community is absolutely necessary. It is. But it is limited. It is very limited. We are to self-feed the spiritual life, giving him time to speak into our hearts. And if you don't know how to do that, that's fine. Just ask. Just ask. We've developed 10 spiritual mentors, right? You know, they're up on the website. They're, they're, you know, and they're ready to meet with people. You know, that could be a one-time meeting. It could be like a, a meeting over once a week over six months or once a month for like the next six months or a year or something like that where they can just feed into you, right? At the retreats, if you're going to the retreats, we're going to be having 15 minutes of one-on-one time with uh, with a spiritual mentor to talk through our spiritual formation process to see where we are. They're just going to give simple direction, doable to- tools to walk out our faith. Is there somebody in your life that you've not been down to help? Think about all the people around you. Is there somebody that is suffering that you've, not, you've just walked by? Spiritual formation is paramount in order to be used by God in the lives of those people. I have to be feeding myself so I can feed others, right? Without intimacy with Christ, we get paralyzed. We get overwhelmed by the need. You may not have the power to help them, but Jesus does. He does. His power can work through you, and his power can work through your church. And sometimes it's a matter of just saying, can I pray for you right now? Notice we say right now, and then we do it on the spot. We don't say, I'll pray for you, and then walk away and never really pray for them, right? We do it in the moment. And we listen to the Holy Spirit in that moment, and we encourage them, and and we we pray what we hear over them. And and sometimes that blows the doors off of somebody's life. It just makes a huge difference. Sometimes it's just a matter of sitting there with somebody and listening to them and, and and. and not offering something, but just being a vo- being an ear for them so they can kind of unload on you a little bit. So be Jesus to somebody. I'll just end with this. Be healed. Don't let it go by. Don't let fear rob you of freedom in Christ. Be a healer. Bring Jesus to others. I think that's one of the biggest things we're learning throughout all these things is how we be Jesus to somebody else. He's, he's not only saying huge theological things about himself, but he is saying, this is what I want you to be to other people. He's training us by modeling it to, uh, to us that how we sit with people by the side of a well and lead people to himself, how we sit with people and pray over them and see them healed and bring them to Christ, right? He is being a model. So live in faith, live in risk, right? Say yes to Jesus and trust him. Uh, with the tension of freedom. Amen? Bell started. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these stories. We thank you for what you're saying and doing in our lives. Father, rob our hearts of any fear, any anxiety of what it means to walk more deeply with you. Of, of life change that might be necessary for us as we give things up that are not healthy, that are maybe even outright sinful. Things that are bringing us death. And we pray that you would break down the walls of our prisons. 
And we pray that you would make us people that are cognizant of those around us, that we would take the time to pray over somebody. We would take the time to lead them. We'd take the time to share with them and bring them to yourself. Father, work through your church. Work in your church and work through your church. We want to see just more and more of you over the coming months and years for this church. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going to pass the tithe box. Um, if